If you're following along, I say this every week, I hope you are, but even having said that, I know that a number of you are saying, oh yeah, that's right, where did I put that book, the story at? Well, when you go pick it up, we're already in chapter 24 this week. I want to encourage you to keep abreast of it. I know it's not the entire Bible, but what you're reading it, it is Bible, and it's in a way that I think will bless you and very understandable. The message this week that I'm sharing, or the title I put on it, was Thy Kingdom Come. Thy kingdom come. I want to start out by talking about perception and misperception. Put slide number two up there, would you, Mary? Isn't that a cool picture? When you look at that picture, if if we could just blot out all the people around it, you'd wonder, what in the world is that a picture of? Well, the only thing that's real in that picture, once you get inside the blue, is that little baby sitting in the center. The rest of it is nothing but your perception. Turn to the next slide, would you, Mary? This is what it looked like when the artist was just beginning to draw this on the street, just starting to lay it out. Go back to number two again, would you, Mary? And when they do their work and they get the angles all right, the depths and all that, the perception changes, doesn't it? It goes from a, from a street in a city, black pavement, to this whatever it's supposed to be. And you'd swear, whatever you do, don't step in that thing. Because you get hurt. Perception. Misperception. Our eyes and our minds can play trick on, tricks on us. The way we think. Have you ever had a perception about what somebody looked like after you just talked to them, say, maybe on the phone? You get this picture in your mind of who they are, what they must be like. And then you meet them. And you go, wow, you're not what I expected. And right away, all their insecurities flare. They go, really? I'm not that good, huh? No, it's misperception. Jesus was facing and confronting the same problem. Misperception. You've got to remember that the Jewish people, the Jewish nation, had been hearing about and believing for and praying for the Messiah for centuries. Centuries. The Deliverer. The one who will come and set his people free. The one who will come and restore Israel to its glory days. And then this guy named Jesus shows up. And he claims some absolutely ridiculous claims. I am the Messiah. I am the Son of God. I am the living water. Drink of me and you'll never thirst again. And you could go on and on and on, and and it's like, yeah, right, seriously? You remember, if you know anything about history, he wasn't the first guy who came along claiming to be the Messiah. And if you know anything about modern history, we still have guys around the world claiming to finally be the real Messiah. If you Google that online, you'll be surprised how many of these guys there are. And what's even more shocking is they have followers, So Jesus came, and there's this perception of who he's supposed to be. And he had to change a lot of misperceptions. And he did it in a kind of a dual fashion. He kind of had a dual mission. First, he needed to shatter the perception of the kind of Messiah that the people expected. The image of this military leader who's going to come, and maybe he's going to come riding in on his white horse and wielding a huge sword whatever, this military guy who's going to come and set his people free, some sort of revolutionary. 
There had been revolutionary messiahs in the years preceding Jesus. And the Pharisees said when they saw Jesus, don't worry about him, he'll disappear like they did. He had to break through this perception that he was going to defeat all of their national enemies and restore the nation. And then, when you come with goofy claims, crazy claims, I mean, imagine this, if some guy just walked into a group like this and started making claims like, yeah, I'm the Son of God, I am the Messiah, I am the Deliverer, I am the Healer, I am this, I am that, what would be one of your first reactions besides, no, you're not? Probably something like, prove it. Prove it. If you're who you say you are, show me. And that's the other thing Jesus had to do. He had to authenticate who he was. So that his crazy claims would be believed. So it's kind of a dual purpose. Shattering their misperception and then authenticating that he had an authority and a power that could back up everything he said. He'd have to demonstrate this to the people. So what we're going to do, we're going to look at some events and some people that Jesus used to demonstrate. Both simultaneously, he was, he was shattering their misperceptions, and then he was authenticating who he really was. And I just want to start with just John the Baptist. Now, Jesus isn't directly tied to John the Baptist till the day he gets baptized by, by John. But you got, I mean, Jesus, the Son of God, Messiah, man and God in the flesh, come to earth, and who do you pick to be the signpost pointing to the Messiah? Some lunatic. I mean, he dressed weird, he ate weird, he lived in the wilderness, and he's out there with a message, and people were flocking to him. He was one of the most unusual heralds, you, if you could ever imagine, of somebody who is going to become the focus of all human history. I mean, (laughs) that's like God deciding to use any of us. Randomly, and he says, I'm going to have you point to the Messiah. I'm coming in the flesh, and you're my guy, you're my gal. Seriously. But John the Baptist is who it was nonetheless. And his message was repent, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of heaven is near. We'll talk about that in a little while, but to a first century Jew, something would have clicked in their mind right away when they'd have talked about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And then Jesus goes on in a couple of interesting events, starting to shatter their perception. The first one is he meets with a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He would be a picture of the the religious elite. He would be a picture of the well-educated. He would be this this, um, expert in the law. Someone who would be respected. And Jesus has this conversation to him. He comes in, in the darkness of night, the cover of night, and he basically says something to the effect that Jesus... Wow, you really must be sent from God to be able to be doing the things that you're doing. But he calls him teacher. Teacher. Jesus does what Jesus so often did when he was confronted with people. He ignored him completely. And he says, unless a man be born again, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
So Jesus meets with this religious elite, the highly educated. And basically what he says is simply this. Just believe. Just believe. Can you imagine being a Pharisee? Your life has been dedicated to the law. The whole law. And you go and you meet this guy you're calling rabbi or teacher. And he says, you've got to be born again. If you're born again, you will not be condemned. Just believe. And in John chapter 3, if you're familiar with that chapter, you know that this conversation takes place in like verse 3, 4, 5. And then we all come to that verse that a lot of us are familiar with from our younger days, John three sixteen. That verse is given in the context of this meeting with Nicodemus. And he just says, just believe. For God so loved the world. Just believe. Ruined his thinking about the Messiah. And then last week we talked about the Samaritan woman. And I just want to mention the Samaritan woman at the well again as a contrast to see what Jesus is doing. He goes from a meeting with this Nicodemus, this religious ruler, a Pharisee, highly educated, a real, really hot stuff in the culture. And then there's a Samaritan woman at the well. She's Samaritan, strike one. She's a woman, strike two. And she's about as sexually immoral as it gets. Strike three. No Jew, no Jewish man, certainly no rabbi or Pharisee or scribe would even have walked near this woman. And Jesus goes right there and has a conversation. Kind of the riffraff. We've got the elite, the Pharisee, and now we've got the riffraff. And he says to her, just believe. She has this conversation going, well, we worship in this mountain, and you guys worship in this mountain. He just says, forget it. It doesn't matter where you worship. There's coming. Just believe. He is shattering the perceptions. He is saying that he has come for all mankind. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter you're man or woman, educated or uneducated. It doesn't matter what your nationality is. None of that stuff matters. You can be a Gentile. You can be a Jew. It doesn't matter. Jesus is Lord. He is the ruler and he is the authority of all kind, all mankind. Just believe. Now we read that knowing what the Bible said and, and living the way we live and the culture we live, but this stuff would be like revel, revelatory to these people. This doesn't fit in either case. Jesus, the Messiah. It's being shattered, their perceptions. And then it goes on in many places throughout the Gospels where he starts to demonstrate his dominion and his authority. In other words, he's got to authenticate who he is. And it's amazing all the things that take place. I'm going to give you about a bunch of areas where Jesus' authority is manifested. First one is simply this, the casting out of demons. Jesus would meet People possessed by demons. They might throw themselves on the ground. They might scream the demons. And he would look at them and he'd just say, either shut up or be gone. Or both. And they responded. He is showing that he has authority over the God of this earth. He has authority over Satan. Authenticating his power. Authenticating his authority. 
And then we could go through the Bible and the, and the New Testament, the Gospels, and, and look at all of the things that Jesus did in the area of healing. It starts kind of simply, he goes to Peter's house, and he's going to have some supper. And he gets to Peter's house, and mother has a fever. He just touches her, and the fever's gone. Word spreads. The story says people started coming from all around, bringing all kinds of sick people, all kinds of demon-possessed people, and they were all healed. All healed. He heals a man with leprosy. He heals the paralytic. Remember that story? Jesus is teaching, and they, and they, they lower this paralytic into the midst of him, and, and, and the paralytic is healed. No physical infirmity. No sickness, no disease existed that he couldn't overcome. Jesus has authority over sickness and disease. He is authenticating his claims to be the Messiah. Now, if you remember the story of the paralytic, it goes beyond the physical healing because there was a bunch of religious people there who thought this, what are you doing? Who do you think you are? Because Jesus made this comment to them, your sins are forgiven. One of the scribes says, prophetically, even though he didn't know he was a prophet, he says, only God can forgive sins. Exactly. Jesus is showing that he has authority not only over physical sickness and disease, he has authority over spiritual disease, sin. He is establishing and authenticating his claims to be the Messiah. In the midst of all this, we see Jesus goes and, and he has dinner with some other people. He has dinner with a tax collector of all things, the despised tax collector. He's not right now showing off his authority or his dominion. Right now, he's shattering again their perception of who he is and who the Messiah is supposed to be. If he were truly the Messiah, if he was truly a man of God, he'd know better than to go have dinner with a tax collector. He did it anyway. This man welcomes and eats with sinners. Again, shattering the preconception, the misconception of who he is. He goes on and he heals a man with a withered hand. He heals a woman with an issue of blood who who just touches the hem of his garment. He heals this man with the withered hand. You know... At first look, you might say, boy, did he make a mistake because it was on the Sabbath. And to make it even worse, it was in the synagogue. And there's a man with a withered hand, and Jesus healed his withered hand. Instead of the religious people cheering and applauding this miracle and rejoicing with this man who had a withered hand, what do they do? Criticize him. Jesus is demonstrating his authority over the law. It's not about the rules and it's not about the regulations. It's about a heart issue. It's about who you believe in. And in his authority, he authenticates again his identity. Most of us remember the story, if nothing else, from Sunday school. We see Jesus sends the disciples out in the boat to go to the other side of the sea. And the storm kind of comes and the waves are 
rolling and the wind is blowing. and They're scared so they can't, can't possibly get any rest on the boat. And then they see this figure coming at them, walking on the water. It's Jesus. And Peter, of course, Peter, Lord, if that's you, bid me to come out on the water with you. And he says, come on, get out here. And we know Peter stepped out and was doing pretty good until he got his eyes off of Jesus and onto the circumstance and he started to sink. Jesus gets him back in the boat. And what's he do? He calms the seas. He's Lord over nature. This man, Jesus, is authenticating his power and his authority as evidence of who he is. Over and over and over he is doing this. Then there's a man who has a daughter who's sick and dying. And she dies. Darius, his daughter's dead. We're probably more familiar with the young man named Lazarus, who Jesus delayed a few days before he decided to go. And by the time he got there, Lazarus was in the tomb. And in both cases, Jesus raised them from the dead. Jesus has authority over life and death. Look at that list of authentication of who he is. Last week I said it's all about Jesus is the Son of God. What a ridiculous claim. Unless you can do that. Prove your authority. Show your dominion. Show your power. And he did it over and over. So in this whole process, he was destroying their misconception of who the Messiah was supposed to be and authenticating that he really was the Messiah. He was taking what they expected and he was kind of recasting it into his mission. They were looking for the military leader. He came to be the king, the eternal king. You know, in... The Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's a phrase that kind of shifts from the supernatural things that Jesus was doing to more of what he was teaching about. And one of his primary messages in those three Gospels, this phrase is used over 60 times. Kingdom. The kingdom of God. Or the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom. It became the message. So while he's shattering their misconceptions, while he's authenticating his identity, he is teaching about the kingdom, the kingdom of God. You know, it says in Matthew 4.17, it was immediately after John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus says these words, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent. And the first part of that verse says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach. This became his message. The kingdom of God is coming. It was the central part of Jesus' mission. In Luke 4, 43, he says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom. The kingdom of God. And I must do it in other towns also because that's why I was sent. Isn't that amazing? That's why I was sent. 
to preach the kingdom of God. And what's really amazing to me is, if you ask me, would you please explain to me what the kingdom of God is? Or let me flip it around. If I asked you, please take out a piece of paper and write down kingdom of God and then define it, how would you do? Well, we would have a whole lot of different things written down and, and probably quite a few of them would be right and, and some of them would be totally wrong. And if it's what he became to preach and it's what he must do, it must really be important and we should really understand it. Amen? Now, I'm not going to try to give you a deep theological explanation of all that that entails, but I hope that we can grasp what the kingdom of God is in its simplest form. As I said earlier in my message here, when John the Baptist said, repent, the kingdom of God is near, when Jesus started saying, the kingdom of God is near, this would have resonated with a first century Jew. When they would have heard that phrase, the kingdom of God, a picture would have popped in their mind immediately. I mean, it's, it's almost, would be almost as common as if I said, the golden arches. What popped into your mind? It wasn't Burger King, was it? McDonald's. We understand our culture. We get it. We know what that means. The golden arches. McDonald's. We can almost all see the the store. Some of us can taste the Big Mac. And some of you are getting nauseous. (laughs) But we get it. We understand it. When a first century Jew heard the kingdom of God, you know what they understood? They understood some things really clearly. One, the Shekinah glory of God. The Shekinah glory. What is the Shekinah glory? It's that the presence of God coming and His glory filling the temple. They're thinking of the restoration of the temple. They're thinking of returning from the exile. They're they're thinking of being a predominant culture of the day. When they hear the kingdom of God, that's what flashes before their mind. And they're missing it completely. And that was part of their preconception of what the Messiah was supposed to do. What's our perception of the kingdom of God? Well, if you define the kingdom of God, there's a couple, three, four, who knows how many definitions you can put into this thing. But if you stick with the primary ones you see in a dictionary or even in a lexicon, it might sound something like this. The kingdom of God. What is the kingdom? What is the meaning of kingdom? That word, kingdom. Well, first of all, it could mean the realm over which a king exercises authority. In other words, a geographic area. If I would have said the king of England a couple hundred years ago, the people would have thought maybe of the domain that England controlled and the king had authority over. Or, when we hear the word kingdom, it could be the people that are in that given realm. The kingdom of King George would include all the people that they were in control of. We don't hear much about kingdom anymore. And if you stick with those two definitions, the realm of authority or the people being ruled in that realm, you miss the point of what's really being talked about with the kingdom of God. Two words, one Greek, one Hebrew. Basilia in the Greek and Malkuth in the Hebrew. 
they both have their primary root from the word translated tabernacle. Tabernacle. Excuse me. Wrong word. It's not tabernacle. That's Shekinah glory. They both have a meaning that's clear in both the Greek and both in the Hebrew, and it has nothing to do with the realm, the geographic area, and it has nothing to do with the people within that realm. Look what it means. It is the authority to rule. Their primary meaning is rank, authority, and the sovereignty exercised by the king. The rank, the authority, and the sovereignty. So when the word refers to the kingdom of God or God's kingdom, it always refers to his reign, to his authority, to his rule, not to the realm that he rules in. It's his kingship, it's his rule, it's authority. Now, you may not see the significance of that right away, but when you start to look at the meaning that way, and now go back into the New Testament and look at all those places where it talks about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, and you start to think of a rule, sovereignty, authority, it begins to take on the meaning that I believe God intended. Let's look at a couple of scriptures. Mark 10, verse 15. We're told how we are to receive the kingdom of God. How are you to receive the kingdom of God? As a child, right? What does the kingdom mean? The rule, the authority, the sovereignty. We're to receive it as a child. How does a child receive it? How does a child look at their parents? As the rule, the authority, the sovereignty. They believe it by faith. Trust, confidence. We need to receive the kingdom. We need to receive the rule, the authority, the sovereignty of God as a child with faith, with trust, with confidence in who he is. Receive it like a child. Receive his rule. Matthew 6.33, it says, Seek ye first the kingdom. Seek ye first the kingdom. What am I supposed to seek? The realm, where, this geographic area? Or am I supposed to seek heaven? We want heaven? What is it? We're supposed to seek his rule. We're supposed to seek his authority. Seek his sovereignty. Seek his kingdom. Seek it first. And then all these things will be added unto you. It begins to come together for me anyway, and it starts to crystallize the meaning of the kingdom of God. If you're, if you're thinking of kingdom in terms of the realm or the people, and it says, seek ye first the kingdom, what is it you'd seek? Other than heaven, I don't know what you would come up with. He's the eternal king. His rule, his authority. In Matthew 6.10, most of us learned this in what we call the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come. What do you think of when you hear that phrase? What is your perception? Your kingdom come. Hurry up, heaven, get here. What does it mean? Now let's put that, Lord, your kingdom come, your rule, your reign, your authority, that thy will may be done here on earth as it is in heaven. 
All of a sudden it makes sense. Thy kingdom, His rule, His authority, His sovereignty, come. We're praying when we pray like that for God to reign, for Him to rule, to manifest His kingly power. And when He does, it puts to flight every enemy of righteousness. It puts to flight Satan, all his demonic powers. It puts it to flight when we give in and understand thy kingdom come. In your own life, in my life, thy kingdom come. Your rule, your reign, your sovereignty in my life that I would lay down my rights, that I would lay down all of my personal prideful thinking all of my confidence in me and your kingdom come, your rule, your authority, your sovereignty in my life, then your will will be done on earth and in my life as in heaven. In the church, God, your kingdom come to Victory Church. Your rule, your reign, your kingship, your lordship, your sovereignty, and then your will will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Wow, all of a sudden, to me anyway, a light bulb goes on and I start to get it. I want his kingdom to come. When his kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven. So when the kingdom of God came, and this is where it gets a little confusing because we're living in the kingdom and the kingdom is coming. It's here and now, and it's coming. It's here and now. You know, when, when Jesus came, he didn't defeat the Roman army, did he? He didn't set up shop and build a royal palace. He didn't put in place legions of soldiers under him. But when he came, he came as the suffering king. But when he did, he defeated the real enemies. He defeated the enemies of sin. He defeated the enemy of Satan. He defeated the enemy of death. And his victory was complete at the cross. The kingdom came. It manifested when the real enemies were defeated. And it's when Jesus came as a person in the power and he came through forgiveness, through repentance, deliverance, and the resurrection. And that's why we can say the kingdom is happening now. But he has promised he's coming back. And when he comes back, he is going to set up a rule and it will be in the fullness of his kingdom. So when we talk about the kingdom, we need to understand a few things. One, it's a gift. It's a gift. It's not imposed upon anyone. You know, when we we heard the words that when Jesus died on that cross, when he was crucified, dead, and buried, and rose again from the dead, all sin for all mankind was dealt with. Absolutely true. But not everybody receives it. And it's the same way with the kingdom. The kingdom was established, and it's available to all, but not all receive it. It's not imposed upon anyone. You know, even though it's a gift, it, it, it also is a demand. 
you're invited to leave everything. Leave everything to follow him and receive the kingdom of God. Just think, if he is really ruler and reigns in my life, I've got to settle in my, my head, my heart, my spirit. Everything's got to go. All my rights are laid down. Total surrender. The world doesn't get that. And, and sadly, probably most of the church doesn't get that. When we hear something like that, we'd think, that sounds miserable. Why would anybody do that? The problem is we don't understand. When we surrender, God doesn't make us lowly subjects. But he makes us active participants in the kingdom. We are children of God. What does it mean to be an active participant? Look at some of these scriptures I believe will be up on the screen. Romans 8, 17, we are called co-heirs with Jesus Christ. What would you surrender to be joint heirs, co-heirs with Jesus Christ? All that's his from the Father becomes mine from the Father. That sounds like a pretty good trade. My will, my pride, my arrogance, my messing up. To be joint heir with Christ. I'll take that. Where do I surrender? We are destined to reign with Him. We're going to reign with Him. All who surrender will reign with me. What does it tell us about our position in Christ? We are seated with Him in heavenly places. In the right hand of God. We Thrones. Where do we surrender? And in 1 Peter 2.9, it tells us that we are made a kingdom of priests. This is what it means for the kingdom of God to come in my life. What it means when we surrender to Him. But I've got to go back and hit this one more time. In John 3.3, 3, unless a man is born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. In other words, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, everything that I've talked about is beyond your reach. None of it's for you. None of it. But if we acknowledge that we are sinners and we need a Savior, and there was nothing we could do in our own merit our own flesh, to earn our way back into relationship with God and acknowledge that the only way was for Jesus to die on that cross. And we receive that gift. It's the gift of the kingdom. It's the gift of salvation. It's the greatest grace gift you could imagine. But unless we're born again, every other kingdom leads to death. Every other kingdom, every other king will hold us in bondage. Bondage. We're in prison. 
when we surrender to whatever we make God of our life that's not the one true God. You must be born again. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I pray that as we meditate on your word and just ruminate on the, the concept of the kingdom, Father, that you would give us revelation. God, that it would ignite a fire of excitement in our soul to have greater understanding of what it means to be a joint heir with Jesus Christ, to be seated in heavenly places with him, to be considered a royal priesthood, to know, to know that we will spend eternity with the creator of the universe and all that exists. God, we need your Holy Spirit to give us revelation to understand such an amazing concept. I pray that you will take the word of God and quicken it to each one of us. Thank you, Lord.